I used to struggle with delivering bad news because I have a disease, it's called I love my employees. And I mean it, I love people. You get, you're getting to know me a little bit here. Like I'm just am who I am. Like I really like people and I screw up and I've gotten way better. And especially last three years, I wrote a book that touched on it aggressively. I talk about it in my content more. Candor was my kryptonite. I call it kind candor at VaynerMedia because I think radical people feel like, oh, let me give you the purest form of it, which I actually think seeps into people's real struggle with candor, which is they don't, they don't deliver it with enough empathy, compassion, sympathy, and context. Attention is the number one asset. Vayner Nation, how are you? Another exciting episode of the Gary Vee Audio Experience. Decided that we've done a lot of motivation, we're doing a lot of innovation, but I wanna get into operation. I wanna get into the depths. Uh, I was really excited when the opportunity came to have this guest on the show, because I think bringing leaders who actually did it, are actually doing it, are, are building, you know, for me, building a business that from afar I admire, in its longevity, it's not a fly-by-night, it's not a quote-unquote unicorn, even though this is probably a unicorn in the way it's defined, but like, you know, like it's it's not, it's a unicorn, AKA a startup that's a big company, not a rhinoceros with a unicorn, with painting its horn and making pretend it's a unicorn, AKA a lot of the startups that are grossly overvalued and then disappear off the face of the earth because they were over leveraged and weren't actually building an actual business. And I want to tap into some of the minds of the people that are doing it because so many of you are on your journey of doing it. And so that's why I asked Henry to be on the show. Henry, welcome. Please tell everybody your full name, what you do, what the company is, and a little bit about the company. And I think we should get into a meat and potatoes episode here of the audio experience. Thank you for being on, brother. Yeah, thanks, Gary. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my name's Henry Ward. I'm the uh, uh, co-founder CEO at Carta. Uh, you know, we do, we're about 10 years old. We uh, do, uh, we have three lines of business. Uh, we're about 350 million in revenue, but 60% of that comes out of our core cap table business, which where we serve startups and manage their cap tables. Uh, the, another 30% comes out of our uh, uh, fund administration business where we manage the back office of venture funds and do their, their financial accounting and reporting to, to their investors, their LPs. And then we have a, a newer uh, business, which is about 10% uh, of the business now. It's a couple of years old and it's our private equity business where we're, we're basically managing the cap tables and fund administration for private equity um, companies and, and funds. How did it start? You know, we, we saw this cap table problem. It was sort of interesting. Um, people in 2013, 14, when we launched, were, were physically mailing paper stock certificates. Like, like if you see the old movies oh, with yeah. the... the yeah, with the railroads. Brother, look at this. this. Oh, you've got four in your room. Yeah. <laughs> Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. Beautiful, beautiful. All pre pre Carta. Uh, yeah, two thousand. All two thousand six seven. Nice, nice. Yeah, really yeah, nice. You know what the valuations of those companies was back then. <laughs> totally, totally, and they they're beautiful. They're embroidered. You know, <laughs> they look exactly like the stock certificates when they invested in the railroads. And, uh, and, and we were still doing that in 2013. Uh, and we said, hey, can we do something like uh, what PayPal did for cash? You know, can we dematerialize these stocks or to Vegas? Instead of um, sending papers, uh, instead of paying, you know, mailing a check or mailing cash 
could we um, uh, send equity through through email the way PayPal uh, sent money uh, through email? Can we can we do that through the cloud? And that was the original idea. Uh, uh, could we push all this stuff in the cloud? And then once you did that, once you dematerialized uh, equity and put it in the cloud, um, suddenly the option value on that exploded. You know, there's so many things we could do. We could do cap table management, we could do option management, we could do portfolio management, we could do liquidity, we could do fund administration. It just, it, it took off. We created an entire ecosystem once once you got things out of paper. How quickly did you know, this is a great question for the audience. How quickly did you know we got something here? You know, we were in beta. I think we kind of launched a free version of this product maybe in July of 2013. I, I, I'm sorry to interrupt. I remember it vividly. I was so pumped it existed. <laughs> That's awesome. The concept, the concept that I was able to just forward it to somebody and be like, take care of this. And like the thing I needed to be done when I was making an investment was done. It was massive for me. Someone like me that cares about time over everything. Like it was huge. I remember those early days. Like I was like, I remember thinking like this just changed my life. Totally, totally. Well, uh, thank you for being an early user. It was, it was, um, you know, it was a tough start. Like a lot of these companies where you're doing something completely new, you know, nobody had bought cap table software before 2014. Uh, it just didn't exist. You know, there, there's companies where you're building something that already exists, like, like MongoDB is like my favorite example, right? People had databases. MongoDB was like, I'm, I'm building a better database. And you didn't have to convince people to buy a database. You just had to convince people to buy a better database. Uh, and and cap tables was different. Nobody ever in the history of the world had ever bought a cap table uh, software product before. And so you had to convince people to buy something that they never bought before uh, and they never thought they needed. And so it was hard to get going. You know, it's hard to convince people to do something they've never done. Um, and we launched kind of an early beta in July 2013 that barely worked. Uh, uh, and then we started charging in, in January of 2014. That's when we're like, okay. And we earned our first $120 on January 7th from uh, a friend and company startup in Austin, Texas. Uh, uh, and it was amazing. It was incredible. The first time you, you build something as an entrepreneur that somebody pays you for is a magical moment. I'll never really, forget it. Really? You know what? That's a great call out. I, I, I genuinely remember like the first Gillette deal with Vervainer Media. AJ was still in college. I vividly remember kind of the first things I sold at my dad's liquor store when I was 15, Kenwood, 1992, 1990 Chardonnay. Like literally, I can sit here and tell you, Kenwood, 1990 Chardonnay from Sonoma Valley is like ingrained in my heart. This goes a little bit to why I want this episode, Henry. I view you from afar and we're getting to know each other a little bit here as a re like an actual entrepreneur. And what I mean by that is it's in when you like love the game, not the thing that has become, which is like, it's so cool. And like, quote unquote, everyone is, you know, like I love playing sports, but I'm not a professional athlete. When you love the game, like you can, like, I don't think a lot of people can actually talk about the first thing they sold. That's like the modern entrepreneur, right? Like it, yeah. they can remember when they raised the capital, they can remember this, that, and the other thing, but like the actual first client, especially if they're five, seven years in, in this new era, but I can remember the first wine I sold for my dad, the first client VaynerMedia had, like all of it, like vividly. Totally, totally. It's it's amazing. I, I remember we made $800 in January of 2014, and it was the most amazing $800. 
you know, we made this year, we'll put a hundred million dollars uh, of bookings on the board. Right. But, and, and the thing is, is even at, you know, uh, 2000 employees, um, you know, 350 million in revenue going to 450. Uh, I spent, you know, uh, half my day, I talked to four customers yesterday that were unhappy and that's what you do. That's no different than when you're a seed founder. Like you're just, if you love the game, you love talking to customers, I have, problems, I have building products. look right now, back to your point. Three, am I right about this? 3.45 PM today, client issue. <laughs> I have 2000 employees. How many employees you got? About 2000 also. Yeah. There you go. Right. Yep. It's amazing. Keep going. Yeah. Yeah, no. And, 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 you know, so, so, you know, at January we made 800 bucks. We're like, okay, well at least somebody will pay us for this. So that, that was amazing. So that was, I guess, milestone one, somebody paid us for something we built, uh, which was, which was a super huge high. And then I would say that the second one, um, uh, was August of that year. And we, we, we moved, uh, our, you know, back then you still called, you know, to, to order something, you know, uh, and so we had a phone system and it was, it was one of these things you called in and you pressed, you know, one to talk to sales, two to talk to, you know, support. And we changed our phone system and broke something so that when you clicked one and it went to sales, it hung up on you. Uh, you know, the classic startup story, like we had no idea what we're doing. And uh, so it just hung up on, on you if you tried to talk to a salesperson. And we sold more in August than we did any month prior. And we didn't even know until halfway through the month, somebody called, went in through support and was like, hey, guys, I'm trying to give you money to buy your software and I can't get to anybody. You know, what is going on over there? And I was like, oh, we have something. People are beating down the doors uh, uh, to get this product. And I, I would say the third one was we finally had so many sales orders, we couldn't onboard them fast enough. And this was in uh, January of 2014, a year later, or sorry, December of 2014 and we're going into Christmas. Uh, and I told the sales team, uh, all five or six of them at the time, I said, you have to stop selling. You're not allowed to sell. Uh, I'm going to put you on a draw for, for three months and all of you are going to be onboarding managers and we're going to close the doors because our customers are furious because they bought, but we can't deliver yeah. because we're selling too much. You, and that was, that you, was the do, moment. Do you yeah. Do you think that that is an incredible common mistake of successful like obviously a lot of people end up figuring it out. Like I actually think the story you just told, if you even have the talent and the product market fit to get to that problem, you 7.5 out of 10 times know what to do in that moment to get to the next place. Sometimes technology is not there. You might remember Friendster cause you're a tech dude, you know, like Friendster being down all the time really eliminated it from having the opportunity of becoming MySpace or Facebook, right? Yeah. I mean, Twitter got lucky a little bit because there was no unique competitor. There was Pounce, if you remember, um, that popped for a while. But, but I mean, Twitter was a real problem in 2006, 7, 8. It just wasn't up. Yep. Then there's the other thing, like under-delivering on what you sold. Big issue for me in a client service business because I'm completely human-based. You have a smart business. I have a stupid business if I wasn't building something bigger on top of it. And so, you know, I think... I think for us, it's very hard when you're scaling people, as you can imagine with technology uh, or product, it's a lot, quote unquote, easier when you get your supply chain or your tech team down. But do you find that to be a common problem? And then more importantly, for the people that are in it right now, that problem, like you've over-promised and under-delivered, do you recommend they take your track, which is a drastic 
tech or do you feel like they should do things that have worked for me in the past, which was more of a, okay, fuck it. I'm just going to hold my breath and fly the pl- keep flying the plane, but fix it while I'm flying the plane and make sure that doesn't get out of whack. Both. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, so we did this, uh, uh, you know, we didn't really have marketing back then. So our, our version of marketing was me. Uh, and I, and, and my assistant and, or chief of staff, I think. And I asked my chief of staff, I said, Hey, go talk to 50 customers and interview them and ask them how they heard about Carta, uh, why they decided to buy Carta and what that sales cycle was like. And all of them kind of heard a little bit different. Somebody came in from a friend, an investor, Google search, whatever it was. But the one thing that was a hundred percent consistent, 50 of 50, uh, customers, uh, ask somebody else who was a Carta user if they had what they had heard of Carta uh, to decide whether to buy. And so we knew that the most important thing we could get right is that when that phone call happened, the, the, the person who did have experience with Carta would say a good thing. That was like the number one thing. Nothing else mattered. Uh, and so, so I said, it doesn't matter. As We have to make sure that the reference checks go well. And if people aren't happy, it, it kills everything. And I'm willing to take, you know, a three month uh, 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 closing the doors on sales uh, to make sure that's always true. And it was a tough decision, right? You know, to tell the board, hey, I'm not going to sell for three yeah. months. That's a tough, tough conversation. Let's, let's to have. Let's segue back to like me wanting it to be a meat and potatoes table. Talk to me about the pros and cons, not just from your perspective, because you have yours. And obviously there's been a lot of success. Congratulations. So I have a funny feeling people are feeling pretty decent on the board, uh, at least at this point. But tell the kids or the OGs, I'll tell you who's a big listener to this, Henry, that I think we can inspire. A 47-year-old, very successful corporate player who she or he feels they're ready. They're ready. And because they've been successful for 25 years in that environment, are going to actually have like a real board and real investors, right? Talk me through your perspective, but more more importantly, I was going to say equally, but I'll just say more important because and through the eyes of many of the founders you've been around over the last 15 years, the watch outs and the ways to best use a board. Let's do that. Yeah. So I have two tips on this that have worked well for me. So one is, you know, the boards are always hungry for information. They want to know what's going on, you know, et cetera. Uh, And one of my favorite lines from the Ben Horowitz book is, you know, apply pressure, either feel pressure or apply pressure. And I think, you know, he's really talking about executive teams. When the yeah. exec teams are like hounding the CEO and the CEO is like, oh my God, I don't know what to do. You know, everyone's on me. I feel so much pressure. He's like, turn the tables, apply pressure or feel it. I think that's true with the board. And so I used to tell the board, you know, hey, I want to put you to work. Uh, and we had a, what's called an adopt a business unit program where I'd have the, the board, each board member would like pick a business unit. So I'd have Matt, you know, work on cap tables and I have Mike work with the liquidity team and they'd meet with the team once or twice a month. And it was great because one, they helped me, they helped scale me in terms of the strategy and, and sort of influencing the organization. I could run a flatter organization that way. And two, when, when the board meetings came up, they all had firsthand data. It wasn't just me trying to explain everything. Like everybody kind of had data. So when they're like, Henry, what's going on with the liquidity business? I'd be like, Mike, what's going on with the liquidity business? You know? Um, and so, so it, it really brought them, brought them in. The, the second thing I would say is um, the goal that, you know, the, the number one rule on, on boards is don't surprise them. Like that's just it. Like as long as you never surprise the board, you'll, you'll be okay. Uh, and so that, that, takes that, a is, lot of- that is the classic mistake that, very entrepreneurial, deep, uh, someone like me, 
who would be like, I'll figure it, like never had a board before. Like I, and I, I, I really don't have board life the way, because I, I knew that this would be a huge mistake of mine. And ironically, I'm on boards and I help the Gary in that situation. I see the CEOs doing the mistake I would make and I make it safe for her or him be like, hey, I know what you're doing. It's okay, because I don't want to be a hypocrite. I do this shit all the time. You're being over-optimistic and you don't want to scare us. So you're trying to do something, but let me give you the preview. We're going to see you in 90 days and you're going you're gonna to be on the other side of this. So you're going to have to admit to the problem and everyone at this table besides me, because I'm ridiculous, but the rest of the people here are much more straight and they're going to be pissed. So why don't you just tell us that shit's fucked up now and let us help you for the next 40 minutes instead of saying it's all good. Because to your point, and this was, I'm glad you went there because I really want to give you the, I'm on the podcast all the time. I can put out content to these people all the time. I want them to hear different voices. This, let me hold it in and maybe I'll make it work by the time I see them in 90 days. When you see them in 90 days and it's double bad, AKA you didn't say shit 90 days ago. And now you're saying it's an 11 out of 10 issue. Whereas 90 days ago you were saying it's all fine. AKA it's a zero or a one or two out of 10. You're in deep shit because you've lost trust of the board. And that's when the seeds start to sprout of are you the right person to run this company? And if you have a board that has say in you being, AKA you didn't structure in a way where you could actually get ousted, you better be real careful. AKA forget about over promise under deliver. Under, under, under promise to your board and over deliver, yes? A hundred percent and uh, totally with you, Gary. I'll, I'll even raise you one, which is Please. like, even if it's like, you know, you're, you're previewing bad news, whenever anything, you know, is like, I think is going to be a little controversial or, you know, people will have different opinions on or anything. I do, I do what I call the rounds, which is like, I text, I call all the board members one-on-one -on -one and I say, Hey, you know, I want to give you a heads up at the board meeting. I'm going to bring up, you know, such and such. And I wanted to get your, you know, I want to preview this with you before, yep. you know, it's a group setting. Smart. So you can tell me what you think, you know, blah, blah, blah. And and it, it makes them feel special. It makes them feel connected. You know, th they can tell you things that they may not want to say in front of seven other board members, you know, et cetera. And it's an incredible amount of work. Like, you know, to call seven people, eight people and have the same conversation, you know, to, to, to do that. But it's that work that instills the trust so that by the time the actual board meetings happen, everybody already knows yeah. what's going on. It's, it's been and so it's been, quote unquote, sold before you even had the meeting. Totally. And, and I, I like when my board members zone out in board meetings and like they're bored and they're like, we've seen this. Like I, I actually, people, I, my exec teams always like come out of these board meetings and go, I don't, they, I, Henry, I, I, were they interested? Do they, you know, do they care? And, and I'm like, like no. that, <laughs> that, I'm like, oh my God, I'm, I'm managing the board so well. When they're like enough, we get it already. Like, like that means I've overdone it. I've over communicated everything. There's no surprises. Like, yeah, when the board is literally bored, uh, like I've done my job well. By the way, get your board bored is like a, a book on managing <laughs> a board. I, it's definitely a real blog post. Henry, um, what's the biggest mistake you made in 13, 14, 15, 16 as a leader that you're better at? I talk a lot about me being better at candor. I used to struggle with delivering bad news because I have a disease. It's called I love my employees. And I mean it, I love people. You get, you're getting to know me a little bit here. Like I'm just them who I am. Like I really like people and I screw up and I've gotten way better. And especially the last three years, I wrote a book that touched on it aggressively. I talk about it in my content more. Candor was my kryptonite. If I asked you 2013, 14, 15, Henry, 
versus 2022-3 going into 2024, Henry. What's been the biggest gap you've closed as a leader? Yeah, well, I have two thoughts. One on the on the candor side. I've always had a problem with the kind of the candor, candor, radical candor thing. I, I remember talking to Kim about it and, you know, I, I love Kim. I think she's fantastic. But I always said, you know, the problem I have with the book is it's a, it's a one size fits all. Like radical candor kind of works with no matter who you're talking to, you know, whether you're talking to a shy, you know, 23 year old first job employee or like your 25 year veteran CFO that you've worked with for six years. Right. Like it's it's the same. And and everything I know about people is uh, know your audience. Like the, the, how you talk to them, yeah, yeah matters. That's and what's so, tough. So about- to your point, Kim's awesome. Like by the way, I call it kind candor at VaynerMedia because I think radical people feel like, oh, let me give you the purest form of it, which I actually think seeps into people's real struggle with candor, which is they don't they don't deliver it with enough empathy, compassion, sympathy, and context. Totally. I, I would even go, so here's the, I, I do this all the time in my management training, right? You go, you go okay, so the manager's working with the, their employee and the employee's not doing great uh, in the manager's view and the manager says, okay, you know, so I'm going to deliver the feedback. And they basically say, you know, employee, you know, I don't think you're doing great. And, you know, I always ask, you know, the, the, the most important thing to figure out is it doesn't matter yet what you think. What, what matters is what the employee thinks, right? If the employee agrees with you and is like, I don't think I'm doing great either. That's a very different conversation than if the employee's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm crushing it. And so the, the first thing to say after you say, hey, I don't think you're doing great is, what do you think? Mm. Right? And if they're like, uh, I don't think I'm doing great either, you're like, amazing. So let's talk about how, how I can help. Right? That becomes a collaborative discussion uh, of, of fixing it. If the employee's like, uh, uh, I'm crushing it. I don't know what you're talking about. That's a very different conversation. Right. And then the second, you know, if you go down the decision tree, the second thing managers always do is um, I say, OK, what do you say if they say, manager, you're, you're wrong. I'm crushing it. I don't know what you're talking about. The manager will always what they do is they, they double down. They're like, no, no, here. Here's all the reasons why you're not doing good. Right. And I'm always like, that's the losing battle. Yeah. Never do yeah. that. Yeah. Right. And my my advice is always to say to the to the to the employee, I said, oh, amazing. I'm so glad you think you're doing well. Why, why do you think I don't think you're doing well? Mm. And, and right, so, so you lead with curiosity um, because that's the thing to figure out, right? It's not, it's not the, the question to solve is not you know, if the employee me, is doing well or not. Me, the question me, to solve is why, why are you seeing the same thing differently? That's the question to solve. You know, it's, I love you for that because we do something here where I train my leaders to say, hey, Henry, in my subjective opinion from my purview, which is all I can really rely on, and the data that I've gathered from others, I believe you're not crushing it. Instead of like, this is definitive fact. And that really triggers people because we know this, a lot of managers are wrong. A lot of times you're right, a lot of times you're wrong. By the way, I've watched managers for years give feedback to people only because they wanted to keep them down because they knew that person was better than them. Totally, 100%. Idiosyncratic manager bias, yeah. I think, is one of the worst uh, diseases in an organization. I couldn't agree more, brother. Yeah. Henry, let, real quick, just to almost like we interrupt for this commercial break. I really do love your product. And so one more time, who who's listening here should really discover Carta and why and what does it do and where should they go? Oh, thanks for letting me do yeah, that. Yeah, I, really, I really, you know what's funny? <laughs> People, I've done this podcast a long time. I never do this. 
I wanted to do this for two reasons. I wanted a steak and potatoes meeting, which we're doing. And honestly, I really think I'm about to help a lot of people <laughs> who listen to this show. So I'm being a little selfish and I'm thrilled that it's good for you. Yeah, thank you. So, uh, you know, we, we serve uh, 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 two types of customers. So one is if, if you're an entrepreneur running a company, uh, whether it's, you know, a two-person startup, whether it's uh, uh, an LLC, you know, um, small business in the Midwest, like we have products for you. Basically, we want to help you manage your your shareholders, um, your stakeholders, your employees. So so we'll, we'll help you on, on understanding the capital structure of your business. That That's what we do for, for entrepreneurs. Uh, and then on the other side, if you're um, uh, a venture fund manager or a private equity fund manager, we'll help you manage your your fund. And like Gary, you're a, you're a customer of ours, yep. you know, for your venture fund, yep. um, and we help people like you. You know, I, I have this kind of view of the world, which is, you know, America as a country, we're, we're like great at producing um, accountants, you know, and lawyers and doctors. Like we're really good at that, um, but we're really bad at producing entrepreneurs. Like we just don't. Yeah, we, we don't, don't do that well. We don't produce them. What happens to them? I'm going to show you something, Henry, that is appalling. This is my report card. Look at my class rank. <laughs> it looks like mine. Yeah. Think about that. You and I have started a company from scratch with 2,000 employees. Knock on wood, are doing extremely well. If, I mean, I was literally the 11th worst student in my class. You're absolutely right. We now look. I actually would argue a different point. I actually think America is great at creating entrepreneurs, which is why it creates entrepreneurs in the macro, in the micro, aka school system and like a lot of social norms. We have the inspiration for entrepreneurship here. We put it on a pedestal. There's plenty, I was born in a place where we demonized it. It was called the USSR. I was born in the Soviet Union. You know, and so I think that, but to your point, we definitely don't teach it. You're either born with it and you fight the system you're the one that really bothers me, which I think is what you're touching on. You're born with it and the system and your parents take you out of it, which is the devastating one. Some of the greatest entrepreneurs were talked out of it to be lawyers, you know, and doctors totally. and that crushes me. Um, so I, I, I love where you're going with that. So go ahead. Well, well to your point, yeah, yeah. you know, entrepreneurs in, a, in America, were you know, we're celebrated, but, but we're the aberration. Right, we're the weird ones. To your point, your report card shows it. Right, you're you're the exception, not not yes. the rule. Yes. Uh, and uh, that that's why I say like it's it's a weird thing. And and it just goes from like the way the way we we teach school. Right, school is taught you go kindergarten, first grade, second grade, you know, eleventh grade, you know, freshman in college, and then you become a, a junior associate, and then a senior associate. And it, it just there's a ladder. In entrepreneurship, there's no ladder. It even goes to like the way we do school, like tests, right? It's so weird. Tests, you start at 100%, uh, it's bounded, and then everything you get wrong, you get you get dinged and you go down, as opposed to you start at zero, and then everything you get right, you go up, uh, and it's unbounded, because that's what entrepreneurship is. You start at zero, and you go up, and it's unbounded. Um, but but that's everything we're taught in school is the opposite. What... um. What have you noticed? Here's a good one. A lot of people for that. You have 2,000 employees. I have 2,000 employees. What does a middle manager, call it a director wanting to be a VP, everybody's got different terminology, but like, what does a middle manager in your company do to take it to the next level? And, and you can be very specific of how it works at Carta. And how do you feel that maps to advice that I think we have a ton of middle managers, great, you know, six-figure salary, doing their thing, but really do want to grow. And from a CEO's point of view, from a real entrepreneur and been around the kind of 
tech companies that are really, there's a lot of companies that fit the profile of what you do and, and, and a lot of them are coming and are being built now and just, and even a lot of them had to be at this point of the size of you or my company and that was 30, 40 years ago. But middle manager, what are some of the things you're seeing that helps somebody propel to a, a VP or SVP or EVP or take those next two steps, double their salary, more responsibility, more challenges, enjoy their day-to-day more? What, what are some of the cliche things you think about when you're trying to help a, a middle manager grow? Yeah, I, you know, I was, um, I, I, when I was 18, I, I enlisted in the Marines uh, and I, I went through kind of officer candidate school and college and all that. And somebody said to me, um, he goes, you know, the, the, the difference between military life and civilian life is in the military, you're judged by the, the worst thing you did. And in the civilian life, you're judged by the best thing you did. And in, in most companies, middle managers are judged by the, the worst thing they did, right? Your job is to not, not mess up. Right. And and to like do the right thing and, and be, be popular and liked and, you know, all, all that kind of stuff and not piss off your boss and, you know, not have any dings. Um, and, and that leads to a very defensive, you know, middle management core yep. uh, and, and really a calcification of an organization. Uh, I hope at Carta uh, we're a company where we measure middle managers on the best thing, the best things they've done. And so if, if that's true. Uh, that really means like we forgive mistakes. We don't care about that kind of stuff. What we really want to see is a middle manager bend the arc of Carta, right? Like a middle manager just like they may may do six things that don't work out, but boy, that seventh thing that they did, wow, right? Like that gets on my radar. Like I'm like, who who was that person that was in that meeting? What did they just do? Bring that person back to my office. 100%. I want to hear more about it. Hundred um, percent. And 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 but that's really hard. It's really hard it's to build really hard. And, and and it's hard for them not to fear the ramifications of shining. Most right. middle managers are scared to shine because they know when they leave, it becomes political, and their boss, VP, whatever, are like, "What the fuck was that?" That's right. And they that's think exactly that, right. and they think that person can get them out before you and I can get them up. That's right. It, it's threatening. Right, because their boss is like one. If my middleman, if if my manager, you know, that works uh-huh. for me, uh, makes a mistake, that's a reflection on me. Uh-huh. So I'm gonna punish that. And then if they actually do something amazing, right? Uh, what does that make me look like? Like uh, they they're better than I am. And so so that's why middle management is such a like an I would almost describe it. It's like the oppressed, you know, uh, middle class of of organizations and and creating a dynamic uh, middle management core. I think is one of the biggest challenges of running a, a, a growing organization. I couldn't agree more. Um, um, what have we not touched on in the last seven or eight minutes? Uh, you know, on the on the scale and operational side, you're you're sort of talking about the um, what I would have done differently, you know, and how things are different from like the the first five years versus the the second five years of this company. And I would say, you know, the the the, the job changes quite a bit. For, for the CEOs that are out there that are thinking about early stage uh, versus versus late stage. And, you know, there's this kind of inflection point where I used to be able to keep the whole uh, company in my head. Like I, I used to know the whole business yep. in my head. Like I knew everything that was happening. Uh, and there becomes this inflection point where I feel like I don't know anything that's happening. Uh, and it's like, you know, I also describe it as, you know, when I talk to early stage founders, uh, nothing happens unless you make it happen, right? That's that's what it means to be an early stage founder. Is like you you are the catalyst. You you create the energy of the organization, and then you get to you know the scale you're at, Gary. And like 
things just start happening and you're like, why are these things happening? Right? <laughs> like, like, I don't want things to happen and they happen. Let me ask you, you know? a question. This is a good one because for the hundred people in the next year and the thousands over the years that listen to this, for the 2000 plus employees like you and I, I'm going to ask you a question. How many, not just your direct report, the C-suite, how many family members do you have in the 2000 that are your eyes and ears? They might be a director. They might be in ops. They might be in HR. I just want, I'm curious what your answer is. When I say family members, you know exactly what I'm saying. The fucking homies, the one that yeah. eyes and ears, the, the double agents, like the ones that are really helping you mitigate or get clarity on all this shit, to your point. I think we're opening an office I didn't know about that I'm like beside myself about from a meeting this morning. Dead serious, a physical office. Um, how many of those do you have of 2000 right now? Go. Yeah, uh, probably two dozen. Yeah. Um, I should have more. Cool. Uh, and it, but Not a bad number. So, Not a bad yeah, number. I would, I would say two dozen, 24. I would say, I would say I have 40 and I would like another 12 as well. And, but I got, I have a company that started with a bunch of kids that have worked here their whole life. We're only 14 years old, similar to you and a little bit older. And I think, you know, actually, so you're what, 10 years old now? Yep. How many people have worked there for eight years or more? Uh, less than, less than 15. Got it. We got a little bit luckier and I make sense equity. You, you had different things that probably triggered that. We got really lucky with our 11 plus of that 14 year run. There's enough that allows me to have more of them. Anyway, not to lose the final minutes here. Everyone who's listening, make as many family members as you can. If you plan on growing big, big, but remember to be a family member that requires you putting in the work for them to take you in as family, to be able to have what we're both talking about, which is very needed at scale. Yes. Totally. And so knowing, like, I just have, you know, someone that, uh, you know, is in, is in London and I'm, I'm going to London uh, next week, you know, to kind of visit the office. And, you know, I have my person there and I called, called her and I'm like, Hey, tell me what's really going on over there. You know, I, I get the reports, I, I get it through the chain of command, but like, tell me on the ground, like what's, what's really happening. And it, it's like super, uh, super powerful. And having those people uh, is super important. There's also this kind of you know, you know this because you're the the, the founder uh, CEO uh, as well as I am. There's this big difference. I, I talk to executives about this all the time. You know, what's the difference between working for a founder CEO versus a professional CEO? <laughs> uh, you couldn't night day. Yeah, yeah. Hold no, on, I apologize. It would be inappropriate. <laughs> like there's just there's nothing is a bigger change in the history of an organization that's destined to be big than the day the founder CEO she or he leaves. Nothing is a bigger day. That's how different it is. In the totally. history of the company, public, IPO, nothing. Totally. It's a completely different culture, dynamic, you know, and, and just the, 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 the way that you work. Like we've had terrible success bringing executives in that have never worked for a founder CEO before. Uh, and then they work for me and they, they just think I'm a maniac. Uh, understandably, like compared to every, you know, CEO that they work for, they're like, God, Henry is just, is impossible. Like, how do I work with this guy? And then you, you work with, you know, executives that have worked with founder CEOs and they're like, okay, Henry's just a, he's just a normal founder CEO. Like that's how, that's how these people roll. Um, it's such a different, different framework. Parting shots, my friend. Uh, what, what, 
things of business or, or Carta or startup or pop. You want to talk about Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift, you know, like every other freaking human on earth. By the way, there's no more cliche New York Jets thing, my real passion, my true love, than the at the height of this Taylor Swift Kelsey thing. The Jets are playing on Sunday night national football, the most watched game, not even Monday night anymore. Sunday night, Taylor Swift's going to be in the building. 10 million people that have never watched a football game are going to watch because of all this hype. And the Jets are at the low, low point of maybe their franchise with the hype of Aaron Rodgers and the Achilles and we're not playing well. This is the most Jets game ever. <laughs> totally. Anyway, two minutes on anything. You know, actually, let me say it this way. You were thinking about this podcast. What did we not touch on that you either wanted to touch on or thought we might touch on? You know, what, what I'm excited about uh, talking with you, Gary, is I, I do a lot of podcasts, you know, in, in my industry. You know, yeah. we do, you know, we're talking venture, you know, yeah. and so on. And, you know, one of the um, uh, things I, I spend a lot of time talking about, we, we call it crate ownership, right? I have this kind of view of the world that, you know, um, labor used to be serfdom where you were sort of, you know, or, you know, you were legally free, but economically indentured. I think we're in the era of payroll today where you, people sell time for money. Um, uh, and I, I think the, the future of, of labor is, is really going to be an ownership era. You know, and I think, you know, the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. And That's we right. see it in, in tech and you're starting to see it in other industries, you know, in, in um, uh, entertainment and sports. You know, the PLL, Professional Lacrosse League, gives equity to, to players. You're starting to see it in other, you know, the NBA starting to think about it. You're seeing it in other industries. And so one of the things that, you know, I'm excited is you have a broader audience outside of, of tech is, you know, can we start catalyzing more companies thinking about ownership and employee ownership uh, as a way of, of compensation so that the next uh, era of, of labor will be an ownership uh, ownership one? I think that's right, brother, especially if you nerd out on the blockchain and what that technology will enable and really understand not the not the speculation of the NFT market or the hype of the cryptocurrencies. Like if you really understand what the blockchain will do for the thesis you have, it is the underlining technology enabler of that guaranteed truth. hundred percent. Yeah. I enjoyed this, my friend. Great job. Gary, thanks so much. So much fun. Thank you. One more time. Where should everybody go to check out your company, which I think a lot of people should be using? Uh, Carta.com. C-A-R-T-A.com. Thank you. And everybody, you know this. I don't, go for the hard push. And you can tell, see he wasn't looking for the push. I was looking for him to push. I think a lot of you need this because you know, in the same way I'm pushing you to make 30 minute meetings, 15, we didn't get to this. One hour meetings being 30 minute meetings. Not, we don't need 21 people in this meeting. We need 13. Everyone's like, oh, I'm stretched. I'm like, what about managing your time? And so same here. This to me is a saver of time versus the way you're doing it and doing it better. So anyway, congrats. I, I'm, I've been very impressed for a long time from afar, Henry, and I'm, I'm thrilled we stumbled on each other. I'm thrilled you, you took the invite to come be on the show, and I love this time together. Yeah, super. Thank you, Gary. Thanks so much.